This is the podcast for Woodland Presbyterian Church in Memphis, Tennessee. We are maturing God's people to serve a hurting world. We hope you enjoy the message, and if you'd like to learn more about our church, look us up at woodlandpres.org. Thanks so much. May the Lord bless you. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And uh, my wife, the teacher, uh, reminds me that it is really helpful for you in terms of your learning and absorbing the Word of God to actually have it open in front of you. Uh, so if you don't have a Bible with you, open up on your phone. Uh, no tweeting or texting during the service unless it's to uh, post something great about the sermon. Uh, but you can also use the Pew Bible there in front of you, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I'm not going to read the whole uh, text at the beginning because there's a lot of it. It's a big chapter. And trying to get through all of Corinthians in six months uh, is a challenging thing to do, so we're really taking some, uh, some big uh, bite-sized chunks, but we're gonna, I'm going to read a few verses, and then we're going to go through the whole chapter. But remember, we're thinking about how does the Word of God help me to recalibrate my life? How does what Scripture says help me to understand, first and foremost, the character of God and His goodness? It help me to understand my own sinfulness and brokenness and need for that saving grace that's so freely offered to me in Jesus Christ? And then as a response to what God has done and who he is, how then am I called to live? How am I called to walk in obedience? And there are some general ways where that's going to, uh, to be um, applied for all of us, but there are specific things, because each of us are on a different journey. Each of us are in a different place in our spiritual maturity. Some of us have been walking with God for a long time. Some of us are, are new to the faith. And so wherever you are is right where you need to be. And remember, we often say, or I'll say, you know, God meets us right where we are. You know, come as you are. That's a great idea. Just come in as you are. But here's the thing, friends. Don't leave the way you came. Right? Because if we interact with Jesus, if we encounter his grace, and if we see him in his word, then it should make a change in us. And sometimes that change is going to be big and radical and overwhelming, like a volcano exploding, a demonstration of power. But we also know that a glacier has power as well, right? It can move mountains. And glaciers work really slowly. It's incremental change over time. So whatever that uh, change is that happens in your life as a result of the day, maybe it's a volcanic eruption. Maybe it's just a moving down the path. Whatever it is, respond to God in obedience because there's blessing and there's grace there. So be listening to what God is saying. Don't worry about what I'm saying. Listen to what God is saying and then do what he says for his sake. And for his glory. Let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I'm going to look at verse 11 through 14. Please stand with me if you're able for the reading of God's word. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. The word of God for the people of God. You may be seated. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness and grace and for your word. I pray that as we delve into this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to his brothers and sisters in Corinth, that God, you would speak to us. 
Help us to understand and know how we can respond to live more faithfully unto you, to, to rejoice in the gospel in a, in, at another level, and also to, to walk obediently according to your word. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we live in America, right, which is the land of the free. We're land of the free, right? We are the leaders of the what world? The free world, right? Let freedom ring. Give me liberty or give me death, right? Liberty is freedom, absolutely, right? Um, and why do we want freedom? Why is freedom such an important value in our cultural concept, right? Where we were living here in America, we, I mean our ancestors, and we were living here and this corrupt king over in England was who had sent us originally, but he was trying to, uh, to take ownership of us and what we say, no taxation without representation. And so we started this little thing uh, called a Tea Party, which led to the Revolutionary War. And so for us in America, freedom is a huge, huge value, right? Now, now we know that we have a government, right? So being free doesn't mean that we're absolutely free, but we want to be free from unjust governance, well, Paul has been challenging the Corinthians because he's inviting them, and we've looked at this over the last uh, three or four months, are the relational challenges that always exist in the church. And this, by the way, parentheses, is a hopeful thing for me because, you know, sometimes you look at the church and you go, gosh, you know, I wish we were farther along. I wish we didn't have conflict. I wish we didn't have issues. But here's the thing. Paul planted this church in Corinth, and a few years later, he's having to write a letter to them to say, hey, look, remember what I taught you when I was there. It's just the nature of church because guess what uh, the problem that people in the church have? Sin, right? It's there. And so we have to always be recalibrating our lives in accordance with the Word of God. And so Paul is addressing, he's been working with them about, hey, don't take your conflicts to the judges. Work them out together. Hey, walk in sexual purity as unto the Lord. He's been giving them all these relational things to work through as a community of faith because he wants Christ's life to be revealed in their lives. Now, he's acknowledging, though, that the church in Corinth is facing a different set of problems than the church in Galatia. And I've talked about this, I try to talk about it, all, you know, every couple of weeks. Galatia, their problem was legalism. Because there were people who were coming in and saying, hey, yes, Jesus is important, but you also have to become culturally Jewish. So they were struggling with legalism. The church in Corinth, on the other hand, was struggling with license. Hey, we've been given life in Christ, which means we can do whatever we want. It's called antinomianism. No most means the law, anti-law. We don't have to obey the law because we've been given freedom in Christ. That's an other problem, but it's a, a significant one. And that's what's going on with the Corinthian church. They're free in Christ, but they've been exercising their freedoms in ways that are unhealthy for them. Right? And so it's important that we know the distinction between those two things because for all of us, there are ways that we approach life in a legalistic way and there are ways that we approach life in a licentious way. Right? And that's going to be different for everybody. There are cultural aspects of it. But so I'm asking you to think through, what is God saying to you? How are you maybe over-realizing the power of the gospel and not obeying the law that God has given? Now, we know, of course, over and again, over and over again, we don't earn our standing with God because of what we do. But if God has given us a new standing in him, then it should affect what we do. We should seek to walk in obedience to his word. See, they've misunderstood their freedom. Earlier, Paul has says to them, um, all things are lawful for me. All things are lawful for me. That is, I have freedom. I have freedom under Christ because Christ has set me free. But then he says later, but not all things 
are beneficial. Simply because I have the freedom to do something doesn't mean that I should exercise that freedom. In chapter 9, he is expanding on this principle by talking about the wages that those who preach and teach deserve for doing their work. Uh, and just by the way, parentheses, another one, uh, when someone, I preached a sermon on church discipline, and people said, well, is there a discipline problem in the church? And I said, no, here's the reason I preached on discipline, because it was chapter 5, which comes after chapter 4. So what comes after chapter 8? 9, very good, who said that? Yes, very good, Joe. 9 comes after 8, and so we're on 9. This is the text that we're dealing with, so here you go. Remember, he says also in Timothy, a worker deserves his wages. He states this idea clearly in the middle of the passage. In the same way, verse 14, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. I'm just preaching chapter 9 because it follows chapter 8, so you know. Okay, so he starts out in this chapter, and the first thing he's asking, and I talked about freedom at the beginning, he says, am I not free? He asked all these questions in this passage because it's likely that people were challenging Paul's apostleship. He says, am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? Verse 1. Verse 2. If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Maybe some people in the church were displeased with his refusal to eat meat that was sacrificed to idols. And we talked about that two weeks ago, about the whole matter of eating and drinking. There was this lengthy discussion about what's the right thing. Throughout this passage, Paul is acknowledging that, that he does not exercise some of the rights that he has, even though he's free to exercise them. But that doesn't mean that he's not an apostle. He is an apostle. And he says the Corinthians are his seal of apostleship. Look at, look at verse 4. He begins to then kind of consider what, what the issue is. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Again, another set of questions that Paul is trying to get them to consider. What is the truth? See, the answer to these questions is yes, he can eat and drink whatever he would like. Yes, he can take a believing wife if he so chooses. Yes, he and Barnabas are worthy of being paid. So evidently, there's people in the Corinthian church who are sitting in judgment against Paul and think that his refusal to take advantage of these rights proved that he didn't actually have the rights. They must have reasoned that he did not exercise these advantages because he wasn't truly an apostle. But Paul in verse 7 he says this, who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Those who labor should be compensated. Okay, then he quotes uh, chapter, uh, or, sorry, um, Deuteronomy. He says this, for it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It is written for our sake, because the plowman should plow in hope, and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap these material things from you? So in biblical times, 
there were at least two methods of, uh, of treading grain. Okay, at times, uh, stalks of grain were spread out all over a flat, hard surface called a threshing floor. And oxen, or horses, they dragged this weighted board across the grain by walking around uh, a central post. Other times, animals simply walked over the grain with their feet, which would dislodge the the valuable uh, seed or grain or kernel from the husk or the chaff. Old Testament law didn't allow farmers to muzzle the treading animals. God's law permitted the animals to do what while they worked. If you got a muzzle on, you can't eat. If you don't have a muzzle on, you can eat. So if you muzzle the ox while it's treading out the grain, this prevents the ox from eating your crop. It prevents the ox from eating into your profits. Muzzling the ox makes you more profitable, but only for so long. The truth of the matter is, if you muzzle the ox, he's not going to be healthy because he doesn't have anything to eat. An ox needs food to work, and if the ox doesn't get anything to eat, he may last for a while, but eventually he's going to wear out. So the law says, don't muzzle the ox. Of course, God is concerned about oxen. He is but he's more concerned about people. Like the soldier who serves in the military or the planter who plants the crop, the ox deserves pay. It deserves to be able to eat so that it can flourish and be strong, and so does the one who preaches and teaches. Verse 11, again, if we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much that we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? Think about that. Shouldn't those who sow spiritual things among you reap material things from you? Of course. So what does it mean to sow spiritual things? What do you do when you sow seed, right? You're casting seed out and the potential for new life. Each seed within it holds the potential It holds within it the capacity to grow an entire new plant, which can add life, which adds beauty, which adds the fruit according to its kind. If the seed is sown in the right environment, having nutrients, water, and light, it will continue to grow and become the thing that it's designed to be. So spiritual sowing is the scattering of God's wisdom, God's life, God's word, But only when that seed lands in the right environment can it grow. It is the same with preaching and teaching the Word of God. Each week, you who gather in this place have the opportunity to receive the spiritual seeds that are cast from this pulpit, from the prayers, through the organ, through the ministry of this congregation. Every week you gather, not only on Sunday, But in other times and places, sometimes we meet in the building. Sometimes we meet in other places. But you have the opportunity to receive those spiritual seeds. The reminder of the truth of God's word. This this grand story that God is telling that you're a part of. The good news of the gospel that you can be reminded of every single day, every single week. The reminder of your salvation. The reminder that Jesus loves you. 
that he died for your sins. You can learn about the glory of God and you can be confronted with your sin and know that you're saved by grace, which can then transform you to be the person that God wants you to be, whether it's a volcanic eruption or it's a glacial, slow, uh, incremental change over time. Are you hearing what God is saying? Are you willing to respond in obedience to what God is saying? Is your heart the kind of environment where the seeds that are being scattered every single week, over and over, for nearly 70 years, in this pulpit, in this community, are you receiving those seeds? There are spiritual things being shared here, not just Sunday mornings, but all throughout the week. Are you willing to respond? But think about this. I was contemplating this whole ox and muzzle uh, reality, and it's a technological advancement, if you think about it, right? Because you, once you go from a hunter-gatherer kind of community into a farming community, then, you, then you're growing crops. And at first you realize, hey, we have this crop, but we've got to get this seed or this grain from the chaff, and so let's do that. And then someone who is sitting around and sees you know, a buffalo or an ox on a hill somewhere says, hey, let's get that thing to do it. And so then you have to get that thing. Maybe it was a woolly mammoth from the beginning. I don't know. But they get this thing and somehow they tame it and they train it and teach it. It's a technological advancement. But it could be done. That work can be done apart from the ox. But what does the ox do? The ox allows you economies of scale. It allows, because of its strength, because of its capability, because of its unique gifting, it allows you to thresh the grain more quickly so that you can have a higher yield and more produce. You can do it on your own, but you have the ox there with the ox's specific gifts and abilities. And here's, let me say this. Every single one of you, every single one of you can do what I do. Every single one of you, because you have the Holy Spirit, because Jesus has claimed you and saved you, you have the ability to sit down in front of a Bible with, with the word and reflect on it and say, here's what I think it's saying. The way that you would do it is going to be different than the way that I do it. And I also have been doing it up in front of people for a while, so I'm kind of used to that. And I'm not saying getting up and making a presentation, but I'm talking about hearing from the word of God and being able to share with others in your life. Here's what God is saying to me about his word. Every single one of us, because we have the Holy Spirit, has the power to do that. And yet, God has also called some people for a different kind of work, which is this pulpit ministry or this speaking ministry or, or the proclamation ministry. It's not that I'm better at it than anybody. I mean, man, if you want to hear good sermons, go uh, get on a podcast. There's some amazing preachers out there, right? We can hear fantastic teaching and preaching. But God has given me this task for this piece of wood in this community to do it. It's not that you can't. You can, and you should. And I'm encouraging you always, take, on, take your ownership of your ministry. But God has given me the responsibility and others to teach you, to use my strengths and my abilities to encourage you, to sow spiritual seeds among you every single week, all the time, so that you would take hold of the good news of the gospel. And see, that's part of what... Our responsibility is having someone who preaches and teaches or does church administration and leadership or care or encouragement in ministry helps the community become spiritually mature it increases our economies of scale by sowing spiritual seeds all the time there's a sense in which we should all be doing that right like I said 
So if you read Ephesians 4, where Paul also is writing, he says that Paul also gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints. Who are the saints? There's one. Anyone? Any other saints in the room? Please, everybody raise your hand. Yes? As, if you're in Christ, you're a saint. Sinner and a saint, right? We're all responsible. And my job, one of my jobs, is to equip you to do the ministry that God has given to you. My job is to get you to do your job. It's not for me to do the ministry, but to remind you and to encourage you and to challenge you and to, to, to be with you as you do the ministry that God has equipped you to do. It's to get you to reflect on your life and your skills and abilities and the story that you have, the pain, the hurt, and the struggle, and how God has been with you and for you, and to say, how do those things all combine so that you have a vital ministry? It's not to get you to get people to come listen to me talk. It's to get you to go and share the good news of Jesus wherever you go. And if some of those people want to come back and hang out with us on Sunday, that's fantastic. But if they're encouraged by your word and because of your ministry, whether it's speaking or serving, that's the goal. That's my job. See, churches where people stand around and watch are not effective. So I, I grew up in Orlando, and I'm an Orlando Magic fan, or I used to be. Now I'm a Grizz fan, of course, because the Magic are no good, and I don't live there. But we had some real battles against the, um, the Chicago Bulls, right? Because Michael Jordan was kind of fading out, and, you know, we had Shaq and Penny, and, and so there were these really good battles. And when we finally beat the Bulls, I was so excited because they were like the legends. But think about Michael Jordan, right? The first three years that he played in the NBA, and he's become, you know, arguably the best player, maybe LeBron. I don't know. I'm not going to get into that conversation. But he's one of the best players of all time, if not the best. But he didn't win a championship until he had some other important people on his team. Now, he won six championships. But some have said he would have only won three if he didn't have, you know, Scottie Pippen and, you know, Horace Grant, all those other guys that came along, right? Because you need other people. And I remember watching a game and thinking, like, there's Michael Jordan doing everything. And everyone's just kind of standing around going, I hope he makes it. Like the guy's on the court. <laughs> I hope he makes it. But when other people start saying, hey, look, not only do I want to be on that guy's team, but he inspires me to do my thing. I mean, like Dennis Rodman, what's that about? Right, Dennis Rodman, remember Dennis Rodman? He's a nut, man. But man, the dude could get some rebounds. He was a rebound machine, and he had all colored kinds of hair. I know he went to North Korea, whatever. He was a good rebounder, and that team needed him. Dennis Rodman had a role. And if everyone's sitting around watching Michael Jordan, they don't win six championships. I read this that um, some guy said that no NBA player has won two or more championships without another Hall of Fame player on their team. You need other Hall of Fame type people on your team. And I want you to know, if you're a believer in Jesus, if you've read Hebrews 11, you are in the Faith Hall of Fame because you're in Christ. So don't diminish your ability to do anything because you don't do what one other person does. Right? What's the thing that you are gifted to do? Work at it. Practice it. Exercise that gift for the sake of the gospel. Paul says, though, 
We need people to help us with this. Verse 13, do you not know that those who are employed in the temple get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? He's hearkening back to the Old Testament when the Levites were the ones who earned their income. They got paid when people would bring their sacrificial offerings to the temple and they got the, the, what was left over, whether it was the grain offering or the sacrificial offerings. That's how they got paid. If people didn't make their sacrifice, guess who went hungry? Levi. And you know how much Levites can eat these days? A lot. A lot. It's not a new idea that Paul's talking about right here. Look at this, verse 14. So he says, In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So how does this happen? How do those who proclaim the gospel get their living by the gospel? It's through the sacrificial giving of, peop- of people to God. You give your money to God. You say to the Lord, Lord, thank you for what you've done. As an act of obedience, I'm going to respond and give to you. And then the Lord provides for those who serve him. I've said this before. You don't give your money to me. You give your money to God, and God provides for me. But if the people of God are not faithful to give to the Lord, then those who proclaim the gospel will not have enough provision. Back to the illustration of the ox. You can uh, thresh all your crop with a muzzled ox, but the ox becomes weak over time, which means the sowing of the spiritual seed in the community will become weakened as well. And this is a reality for the church in Corinth. This is a reality of the church today. But here's something fascinating if you keep reading through the passage, and I encourage you to read this passage a number of times. We've got all of chapter 9 to do. He says this, notice in verse 12, Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Verse 15, I'm going to read verse 15 through through 18. But I have made no use of any of these rights, that is the right to receive income from you, nor am I writing these things to secure any provision For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel that gives me, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do any of this my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching. I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. Paul has the right to earn an income from the church in Corinth. And what does he say? I'm not going to exercise that right. You see, freedom is being willing to say, I have this right, but I'm going to lay down my rights. And this is really a contradiction to how we understand rights in our country. For us, rights are the thing that I deserve that I should get. And so I'm going to take what I should get. And Paul is using this in a different way that's really, really challenging to us. He's saying, yes, I have freedom, but I'm going to turn it down. I have the right to earn through my living, through the work of the gospel, but I've given it up. Because what is he saying? My reward is in the gospel itself, which is allowing him to answer the challenge of those who are essentially questioning his apostleship. Yes, he has the right to material things, but he's electing to forego those rights so that he is not bound to the church in Corinth. Now listen, Paul's situation is different. Right? He is an itinerant preacher. He's come to a city, he's helped plant this church, and then he moves on. He's there for a certain period of time. 
He knows that he's not going to be staying there. He'll be leaving to continue his church planting in other areas, and he doesn't want to be dependent upon the church. But how is this possible? How does Paul function? Well, Paul was called, his calling was to preach the gospel and make disciples who would then form churches. But his means of income, we learn in Acts chapter 18, is that of a tent maker. How many of you ever heard of that? Anyone know what a tent maker is? Right? I mean, obviously someone who makes tents. But the biblical understanding of that is that as a person who has another job, either bivocational or co-vocational, where they earn their income, not from the giving of the church, but by having some other profession. And there are a lot of people around the world, especially, that this is the model for ministry. Other models for ministry, like ours, is not that way. It's vocational. Many pastors are tent makers. There's a sense in which, though, that we all should be tent makers. Right? Every one of us should be doing something to provide for the physical needs of the church. Even the people who work in the church should be providing for the physical needs of the church. You know what ratio that is, whether you're a person who has a full-time job and does ministry for free on the side, or if you're a full-time pastor and does something to benefit the church, is up to the context of your community. There's not a right way to do it. There are advantages and disadvantages to both. Some traditions like ours say we should pay our pastors a full-time salary so they can be totally, solely devoted to the work of ministry. Others do it in a different way. Whatever we decide, we should be committed to it, understanding the disadvantages and the advantages. But this whole chapter isn't just about paying those who preach the gospel fairly. Again, it's about the freedom that we have. And notice, it isn't about the freedom to get more. Paul is not trying to guilt the Corinthians into doing anything. He's not saying, hey, look at me. Man, look at everything that I'm doing for you. You guys owe me. He's actually saying the opposite. He's saying, I'm free to give up something for the sake of someone else. Verse 19, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, the Greeks, the law, I became one as outside the law, not being the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all people, that I might by all means save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them in its blessing. His goal is to be like the people that he is around, so that he can minister to them and show them who Jesus is. He's not compromising himself or his beliefs. He's not losing himself out of pressure. He's willingly giving himself up for the sake of others, so that through his weakness, God will reveal himself to those who are around him. And this is a hard teaching, right? You think about our culture today and our individualistic aspect that says, you should have everything you want. You only live once. Be all you can be. Your best life now. Be your expressive self. That's the newest one. Be your most authentic self. What does that mean? The gospel crushes those ideas. The gospel says give yourself up. Give up your life. Give up your dreams. Give up your self-centered goals of individualism and allow them to be turned to dust. Not because you aren't worthy. Not because you're not a person of significance. Because you've been made in the image of God. But do it because there's something greater at stake than just your dreams. 
There's something more wonderful and more glorious. You see, Jesus says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added unto you. Pursue the kingdom. Pursue Jesus in his life, and then you're going to get everything else. The best way to find yourself is to lose yourself. And that is contrary to what our world teaches us every day. Last few verses. Verse 24. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? Unlike today where everybody gets a first place trophy. So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete ex exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So Paul, interestingly, uses these illustrations, uh, these athletic illustrations. Now, these illustrations would have really resonated with the Corinthians because of the the games of Isthmus, the Isthmus games, right? If you've looked at ancient Greece, where Corinth is, it's, it's two big, it's one big peninsula connected by what? Somebody say it. Isthmus, right? It's an, everybody say Isthmus. There you go. It's connected by an Isthmus. And so they had these games, these competitions, that were in some ways related to the, what we have, now have as the Olympics. They were done on different years. And they had chariot races, and they had boxing races, uh, they are boxing fights, and they had this other uh, event that was really fascinating. Where is it? Uh, um, I wrote it down because I'd never heard of it before. It was, uh, I can't find it. Oh, pan pancration. Pancration. It's a bareheaded submission sport. It's basically UFC is what they did, Ultimate Fighting Championships. And so it was open to all Greeks, and anyone could participate, and it was a huge thing. Right? We think about the World Cup, or we think about the Olympics, or we think about the Super Bowl. Whatever athletic competition that's going on, March Madness, right? Anyone? Does anyone have? Uh, who's left? I don't even know. Texas is still left, right? Nobody else is left. But it's this big deal that everyone's paying attention to, and then the government would use it for political matters, and people would compete. And the award that you would get was a wreath made of celery. It was a wreath that you would get that was made of celery. Now, it was, uh, obviously, it doesn't have a lot of material value, but right, you know, the, but those gold medals, how much value do they actually have? It's not so much in the weight of the gold, but it's in the accomplishment of being a gold medal winner. And they would compete for this prize. And here, listen to what Paul's saying. They do it for a perishable wreath. Because here's the thing, any wreath that you create with flowers, what's going to happen to it? There's this really cool tradition at uh, St. Mary's, uh, school for girls, where my daughter's going to be graduating next month, and they wear a wreath. It's a, a beautiful wreath of flowers, and it's just this long-standing tradition. And it's really a neat thing, because it's, it's pretty unusual. Instead of a cap and gown, you wear a wreath. But here's the thing. A year from now, that wreath will not be beautiful in floor. It will be dried, because it's a perishable wreath. In the same way that these folks who were competing were competing for perishable wreaths, Paul is saying, I want you to compete for an imperishable wreath. What is that? It's something that's eternal. It's something that lasts. It's something that's going to be significant. And we, we think about the imagery of, the, you know, you ever heard, you're going to get another jewel added to your crown? Like if you do a good deed, you get a jewel in your crown. And what happens to our crowns when we go before Jesus at the, at the end of time? We take our crowns and we lay them down at Jesus' feet. 
And so here's the thing that I'm asking you to consider as you, as you think about all this whole, this whole chapter. I mean, how do you apply this in your life? Are you pursuing those things that are eternal? Are you asking yourself, you know, how, how can I be giving of myself? And one of, the, one of the questions is, am I giving faithfully to the work of God through the ministry of Woodland Presbyterian Church so that the gospel proclaimers, that the staff of the church are able to provide for their families? That's a real significant, important question. Are you giving sacrificially for that one aspect of what we do? Are you giving of yourself to say, yeah, I want to step in to leadership? Now, I've been listening to what Matt and, and what Russell and what Brian, Betty Sue have been inviting me into the ministry. I'm going to take hold of some of that ministry. I'm going I'm to step up and sing in the choir. I've never thought about doing it. I want to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to greet on Sunday morning or I'm going to teach a class. I'm going to be a leader. It's, now it's my time. I don't have all the answers. I don't know how to do it. But I've got to step in because I want to do something that's going to last. Because so much of what we do doesn't last. I was so excited about my bracket three weeks ago. I was really, I had a chance. I was going to win $5 from this pool that I'm in. And now it's, I didn't even beat Levi or Silas. I'm last in my family. And I really put a lot of time and energy into that. No, I'm kidding. But we put a lot of time and energy and passion into things that aren't going to last. And I'm not saying don't watch the game. I'm not saying don't take a vacation. But I'm saying, are you ordering your life around things that are going to last? There was a mission trip meeting about Honduras just a few minutes ago. It's not too late for you to get involved with that. I would imagine that Doug Boggs would fill you in on everything going on on that trip if you want to go. I imagine he would. Doug, would you? Say yes. Okay, thank you. But what does it look like for me this, this week to recalibrate my finances, to say I'm going to give sacrificially to the Lord. I'm going to recalibrate my schedule to serve someone in my community. I'm going to recalibrate my comfort zone. And even though I don't feel comfortable talking to someone about what God's doing in my life, I'm going to do it anyway because he told me to, and I'm going to trust him in the process. What's it for you? I mean, just think, if all of us were doing that, if there was one thing that you learned today, one thing that you learned, and you did that one thing, what difference would it make in our community? We just don't know. It's a wreath that will never go away. So please, do what he tells you. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this message from Woodland Presbyterian Church, maturing God's people to serve a hurting world. Again, if you'd like to learn more about our congregation, please visit us at woodlandpres.org. Thank you very much, and God bless you today.